0: At Mental Health Association Oklahoma, we've spent the year asking people, how do they wanna be seen? It's a simple question that is sometimes hard to answer. We've created a big mosaic with answers from hundreds of people. They say things like, hashtag see me as capable, hardworking, or kind, or maybe hashtag see me as a leader, an advocate, or a change maker. As an organization, we talk a lot about people first. Our programs and services are designed to help people be seen and acknowledged for their humanity. From suicide prevention and fighting stigma around mental illness to ending homelessness and reforming criminal justice, a lot of people in this organization are moving the needle on important topics in the state of Oklahoma. The thing is, these programs and services are not possible without our generous donors. Join us in our mission by donating today Visit mhaok.org and hit the big donate button at the top of the page or donate on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash mhaokla.
1: In the history of media, I think that the track record on depictions of suicide is poor, right? It's often romanticized or else a joke.
2: You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On this week's episode, our resident movie expert, Michael Huber, interviews his former professor, Dr. Victoria Sturdevent of the University of Oklahoma. Professor Sturdevant teaches courses on film history, theory, and criticism. After the Mental Health Download released in a recent episode about how the film The Joker stigmatized mental illness, Michael asked Dr. Sturdivant to discuss the portrayal of mental illness in cinema. As a jumping off point for their wide-ranging discussion, they start with the classic 1976 film Network, which was a key inspiration for The Joker. The film's main character, Howard Beale, is a longtime national TV news anchor. He's also clearly struggling with an untreated mental health crisis. When Howard learns he's going to be fired in two weeks, he announces on live television that he will die by suicide. The classic film was honored with four major Academy Awards, including Best Actor and Best Actress. It is best known for its famous line, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Okay, let's get started. The mental health download starts now.
3: So we wanted to bring you on because there is a certain number of, of individuals that generally are underrepresented or represented poorly mm-hmm. um, have a lot of stigma with them. That's that's people with mental illness. We wanted to do an examination of films and history regarding that. In particular, we were going to focus on one movie that I personally love and is, is kind of in the, the milieu right now, thanks to the success of Joker. It was an inspiration for, for Joker in, in part, as well as a number of other films. But the movie Network, super excited about it. So what do you think about the depiction of mental illness in the film Network?
1: I should clarify, um, as I've said, I'm a media scholar. I'm not someone with professional expertise in mental health in the real world. Uh, So I think that's important that I can talk about the depiction of it, the realism of it, or how it correlates to actual experiences of mental health are are a little bit outside my space. Um, To me, the representation of the character Howard Beale's mental illness in Network is I think something that happens a lot with popular media representations of mental health, which is that instead of being treated like an illness in and of itself that the that the media object seeks to understand, it's used as a, a convenient plot device to help anchor other features of the narrative. And I think honestly... Anything psychological has presented a, a temptation to screenwriters and other creators over the course of centuries, because media, because film in particular and television are such psychological media. They are very good at representing distortion and temporality, and and then m- mixing those things up. That things like amnesia or uh, hypnosis or multiple personality disorder have often been used as the basis of some kind of fanciful plot in ways that are incredibly inaccurate to the ways that those sort of things exist in, in the real world. So to me, the qualities of Howard Beale's uh, mental illness in network are qualities that are really about how the culture is experiencing a kind of television addiction as a distortion of reality rather than how, you know, actual sort of depression or, or um, schizophrenia um, or the other, the symptoms that he shows might actually manifest in, in a patient.
3: I wouldn't expect an accurate depiction of uh, mental illness and people with mental illness to be in a film, especially one like Network, which was designed to be a satire. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not mental illness experts either or mental health experts either. They are trying to to just grasp drama, mm-hmm. and that's what it makes a. Really good tool for is mm-hmm. immediate drama by, by utilizing that. And what I found interesting about Howard Beale in particular was that he was a victim in this scenario. Yeah. You know, oftentimes when mental illness and people with mental illness is used in film, They are using it to depict a villain. Mm -hmm. They're using it as somebody who victimizes. A good example, another film that came out that same year, Taxi Driver, Um, and how we've seen it with Joker, another influence on the Joker, as well as countless other films. So that was something that I thought was very interesting in this film, is that we're actually seeing the media consume Howard Beale and use him and use his mental illness and showing him as somebody who's vulnerable rather than somebody who is dangerous. Right. Uh, did you have any thoughts on how the media was actually utilizing Howard in general and how his mental illness was was used in that scenario and how it, it corresponds with how we use mental illness today?
1: Yeah, it's funny, I'm a person who, um, by choice or by disposition, even though I'm a a media scholar, I don't consume that much violent media. I'm kind of a wimp about it. (laughs) And I do think that the number one ways in which, well, the data show that the number one ways in which mental illness is used in popular media is as an explanation for violence. Uh, We have all of these films and television shows about people that the popular term I think would be psychopath who who which is not a clinical term as well that um, where mental illness is used as an explanation for for why they um, engage in in violent behavior uh, it's funny the the things that I watch, <laughs> which tend to be old movies and kind of more character driven stuff have often regarded mental illness as an experience that leaves people vulnerable to violence from others as much as anything. I'm, I'm a, I'm an old movie kind of person. I'm still getting used to talkies, because I like silent films so much. Um, and in the wake of World War One, there, there was a lot of interest in the media. And um, the term at the time was shell-shocked, right? Veterans who were experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. And in some cases, it was it was sensationalized in a way that led to violence. But in others, there, there was an attempt to kind of understand and, and make sense of, but also a lot of compassion, I think, being expressed in some of those Media, and then being someone with an interest in in comedy as well, the idea of someone being like crazy—I I know we wouldn't use that term in a clinical context—but it's it's long been a um, a synonym for you know, behavior that is outside the norm. So you see things like me, myself, and Irene, where um, someone's non-adherence to social rules becomes the basis of a kind of comic narrative. And so it's funny, I think just because I live under a rock, I don't recognize those um, depictions as violence as much.
3: So you were talking about the data. I I, I even referenced a study here real quick from Mm -hmm. 2003 that uses cultivation theory, something that touches on the the message of the the film network. Cultivation theory, of course, it was a theory that was developed in 1975 by uh, George Gerbner and Larry Gross. They wanted to buckle down on TV in particular, and they theorized that the more people exist in the world of television or in this virtual world, the more they believe reality aligns with that virtual world. Looking at that, there was actually even a speech by Howard Beale in the film that uh, kind of of has that in a nutshell. Somewhere in, in there, he says, We deal in illusion, man. None of it's true. But you people sit there, all of you, day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds, we're all you know. You're beginning to believe this illusion. We're spinning here. You're beginning to think the tube is reality, and your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You eat like the tube. You raise your children according to the tube. You think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We're the illusions, so turn off the TV. Turn it off right now. Turn it off and leave it off. So... Kind of looking at that kind of tells us, you know, we have depictions of people with mental illness Mm -hmm. in shows like Criminal Minds, which is a big hit. My Mm -hmm. parents love it. According to this study from 2003, uh, looking at people with mental illness, they were shown to commit violent acts of crime and commit violent action somewhere around 10 times more than what the average person does. And moreover, it was at least nine times more than what even the most conservative estimate is in terms of what somebody with mental illness would actually perform. You know, these are the kinds of things that that are being expressed. So it just seemed really interesting to to us that this is what we're we're looking at and what's being promoted in television and what kind of an effect it has on human reality in terms of cultivation theory. So what what kind of thoughts do you have on on that?
1: Well, it's interesting and I wonder how the those facts will continue to evolve because the media diets that modern consumers perceive are incredibly fragmented, much more fragmented than in any previous generation. You know, even um, when you were a student here at OU, there were some water cooler shows that everybody watched or some benchmark movies that, that lots of people saw. And as a professor, I could reference those things and know that everybody would know what I was talking about if I said, OK, well, this is a thing that happened on you know, The Sopranos last week. Just as a, a faculty member, I've seen that change over the years. And right now, when I ask my students to bring in an example of, you know, a particular type of shot or something from a piece of media that they consume, I they bring in things that I don't recognize at all, and it's not just because I'm, you know, old and of a different generation, but sometimes they don't recognize each other's stuff because there are so many different ways to consume media right now. Some of them really like a kind of tabloid reality television aesthetic, and some of them are, you know, deep into manga um, or, you know, they'll bring in Rick and Morty and I'll say, what's Rick and Morty? Um, and and uh, those kinds of commonalities in terms of where we get uh, just the light material that we consume but also the news that we consume are really dissolving before my eyes as as someone who kind of works on this stuff and tries to tries to track it and so it's interesting because I'm so impressed with contemporary television. I, I I think it's amazing, but I know that what I'm consuming is really different from, you know, what, what one finds elsewhere. And now, you know, I, I'm not, I have made the decision not to subscribe to Disney Plus, at least not yet, uh, whereas other people are going to be on a diet of 100% Disney for the next like six months. And it's going to impact, you know, how we see the world, you know, cultivation theory tells us that about uh, about particular kinds of media effects, I think we can see it absolutely across the board in how people perceive the relationship between law enforcement and communities and how people perceive the trustworthiness of government figures and how people perceive important social issues like mental illness and what it means to support the people in our communities who are dealing with it. I think network was, in some ways, in the middle of an era where people still did sit down and watch the nightly news. <laughs> and so the assumption that you can reach everybody is even a little bit out of date because even the massive contemporary successes aren't reaching everybody in quite the same way.
3: That's, yeah, we actually live in a, a form of media where you can actually select the type of media that you are ingesting what the message is behind it you kind of can can dial down into to that that mindset so uh, it almost makes it harder to battle stigma at that point
1: <laughs> i think so too
3: because if you're already ingrained in it it's already in your mind you're going to to ingest and digest anything that already supports that stigma mm-hmm. aren't you
1: yeah, I mean, maybe not on purpose, but what feels natural and normal to us is incredibly conditioned by the media diets that we have. And I think that's the, the irony is that a lot of texts that are trying to do the work of moving the needle toward acceptance in all kinds of different ways are reaching audiences that are already kind of there and ready for it. And that's, that's very exciting, but it's, it's opening a larger and larger gulf.
3: This reminds me of something that you actually taught me, ah. and kind of going on a more of a philosophical bent of the same subject, uh, Plato's allegory of the cave.
1: Okay,
3: mentioning how how we we dig further into that kind of reminds me of the we talk about the individuals that are sitting in the cave staring at the shadows being portrayed in there. Sometimes you know imagine somebody that gets up and tries and looks behind them, and they see the fire and it hurts his eyes. Mm-hmm turning back around and, and sitting back down because it was more comfortable seeing that. We're almost seeing that in the same sort of sense. Do you think you could elaborate on, on that? Uh,
1: so I, d- I don't want my philosopher friends to get mad at me for getting the allegory of the cave wrong from Plato. But yeah, as you, uh, it's something that's that's long been of interest, I think, to media theorists because Plato, who lived long before there was film or television, sort of had this Terrible uh, of people sitting in a cave who were chained, they couldn't move um, their necks and turn around. Uh, but there would be a fire behind them and a, a wall. He described it as being like a puppet show. If people, if there were figures that went above the wall, they would cast shadows on the wall of the cave, and, and the people who were chained up would then see the shadows and believe them to be reality. That's the, the basic idea. And it's easy to see how that's exciting, especially to the idea of cinema, that we seek out a bounded and constructed version of reality because it's easier to make sense of in some ways than the, the blooming, buzzing confusion of, of real reality. And we willingly put ourselves into a cave-like situation that speaks to us of, of a partial way of seeing the world. And then Plato goes on to say that if someone turned around and saw the fire, that it would hurt their eyes, or, or even worse, if someone were to leave the cave and then come back and try to describe the world outside to the people who were in there, that person would be shunned and rejected, which is harsh, but speaks to a certain kind of human nature. <laughs> the, um, what we can't imagine, we can't imagine, right? So um, media have the Capacity to open up our imaginations in some ways, uh, but also to make us comfortable in the the limits of our own knowledge.
3: So here we are, yeah, in a cave situation, a cave scenario yeah. where we can look at the shadows we want. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get to choose what shadows are cast in front of us, and we get to shun who we want that tries to explain them. So here we're looking at the shadows of people with mental illness mm-hmm. as it's depicted and how we want to see that we see that in the films that that we choose to see we see that in the uh, television that we we choose to see and now it's being reflected in our reality mm-hmm. right now we're faced with scenarios where we have people with mental illness some that are experiencing homelessness mm-hmm. some that you know, desperately need help, some that are experiencing alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And our visceral reaction, our immediate reaction that we've been trained to to react with is to shun them, to move them away. We've got initiatives, political initiatives to put these people outside of our neighborhoods, outside of our world ship them off mm-hmm. lock them up in in a certain area we we lock them up in our prisons which is not the appropriate way of doing that when you're suffering from addiction or any other kind of mental health problem would not be the ideal scenario but this is what we've been trained to do and i think it's it's amazing to see from you know 30 40 years ago mm-hmm. kind of reflect this and and almost predict it mm-hmm. Is kind of what we see in, in – it, it, you watch Network and it almost feels like a documentary <laughs> of what we're experiencing now. You have uh, people who are trying to channel Howard Beale in order to give their prophecies of of the political scenario now. You're, you're Rush Limbaugh's and Glenn Beck's and those that are like that that are trying to channel this person who has mental illness, this person that – with mental illness that is doing this, Howard Beale was not meant to be somebody to necessarily emulate. Right. So do you have any thoughts on how media is obfuscating the world of, of mental illness and, and mental health in general?
1: Uh, Late in his life, the director Sidney Lumet rewatched Network. He said he didn't like to watch his his own films again, but there was a retrospective or something. And he went and, and he watched it 20 years later. And he said things that were just straight up satire in 1976, nobody laughed at in the contemporary audience because they're just how things are now. I mean, it's it's remarkably prescient, but the things that were over the top that were the the origin of the social critique have just entered the the vernacular way that we react to media and how it's produced and, and consumed and and how the ecosystem works. So Yes, <laughs> it does anticipate a lot of the features of the, the sort of ratings-driven 24-hour news cycle um, that we're dealing with now. As far as the, the compulsion to hide things that are ugly, Lumet also very consciously over the course of the film made things prettier as the movie goes along so in the opening scenes it's a jumble of newsrooms and there's cords everywhere and and the compositions of the frames are are very cluttered and as the movie goes along every shot gets actually prettier and prettier the lighting and the costuming and the way that it develops and meanwhile you know things in the world of the film are getting worse and worse and worse until it eventually ends in, in tragedy. But I think he's he's talking about that, that compulsion to aestheticize and deny that—that that, that um, is, is part of how we consume the world. And it's easy to kind of see how that works on social media as well, right? That I think this film really anticipates the world of social media, that kind of minute to minute, this is real ways in which the attention economy is, is moving further and further toward exploitation.
3: Uh, I also wanted to cover, because one of the other major aspects of the film is how it addresses suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, towards the beginning of the film it we actually that's how we enter. That's how we're introduced to Howard Beale and, and Max and, and we end up with two different instances of suicide, one in a comical sense and one that just kind of ends in an interesting way. So the first is that Howard says right off the bat, I want to kill myself. Mm-hmm. I want to do it on the air. Think of how sensational that will be. Think of the ratings.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Later, as just right there towards the beginning, he actually does say he's going to kill himself on the air a week from that time frame. And almost nobody notices at first. It's They double back and see that. And I, it, I found it interesting that they ignored these cries for help was was how I saw that. Um, but in addition to that, it just shows how much people are willing to ignore very obvious problems until they're right in front of you. Right. Nobody noticed until after Howard just said mm-hmm. that he wants to die by suicide on television.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: That's what he did. And it wasn't until he did it on television that anybody did anything about it. And even then they didn't do the right thing about it. Right. The other was the story that Max tells at the beginning, and then he tells it again later in the film, about how he had woken up late and needed to get to the middle of a bridge to go and, and record some kind of, of segment for, for the news. And so he jumps in a cab and says, you know, take me to the middle of the Brooklyn Bridge or something like that, and uh, or the Washington Bridge. I think it was the Washington Bridge. Amy to the middle, and the, the mm-hmm. cabbie turns around and says, you're so young, mm-hmm. you have your whole life ahead of you. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. And they begin laughing about it because it's, to them, a funny story. But here, we're actually looking at an instance where they're making light of people who have thoughts of suicide and the want to die by suicide, mm-hmm. making light of that and, and – how does that relate to how suicide is depicted currently in media? Um, how was it addressed in the past?
1: Well, one, as a as a film professor, I'm so proud of you for noticing that motif and connecting those two different things. <laughs> it's really nice work. You should write a paper about this. Um, two, uh, in the history of media, I think that the track record on depictions of suicide is poor, right? It's often romanticized or else a joke, you you know? And so um, I think this film is just fully of its time in, in, in those terms. I also, I guess I judge it a little bit because when Howard says at the beginning that he's going to kill himself, it almost to me... Sets in motion the ending where they don't feel too bad about having him murdered because he has already given permission to end his life in some way. And, and that that uh, should never enable us as a as an audience to feel OK about that, you know. And so the, the grotesqueness of it is is bound up in the the question of what did he want and, and how were his his wishes not respected?
3: Moreover, just on top of that, the, the the prediction that's made at the beginning, I want to die on air. Yeah. That's going to be sensational and get these big ratings, as if that's that's the big yeah. thing. And, and leaving the human being behind yeah. in the entire film, as just just as we go along, the more we want to forget about. Howard Beale as a person and and making these justifications and looking at it as something that's sensational. That's how it's treated. That's how they, they want to do it. And it's how you know, even Diana, the character Diana, that's what she wants throughout the film as well. She wants to follow terrorists. She mm-hmm. wants this this very thing that they're talking about the the death and the maiming, and they want people who commit suicide and these massive, disgusting, in terms of of, of wanting to sensationalize in it. Mm-hmm. That's that 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 very reaction is is something that we want to somehow embrace. as as consumers of media and the whole motif behind that and the theme behind that, how it's approached. So just very interesting to me.
1: It is, and it's one of those things where this is good screenwriting practice, right? That something is set up in act one that then is, comes to fruition in Act Three, right, which is the death of, of Howard on the air. Um, and unfortunately, it leads to the treatment of his mental illness as kind of cavalierly in the film. But I think this is, I guess this is what I'm I'm trying to mean about how the idea of mental illness is irresistible to screenwriters because it creates such rich drama in ways that don't always help the the conversation culturally. So in this case, you know, it creates a nice little aesthetic bookend to the beginning and the end of the film and the the film's general condemnation of the way that the media environment is changing. But, you know, you you take something like memento which uses the characters memory loss as a, as a whole narrative it, clearly the the screenwriters just dug in and thought oh that'd be cool and media gives us a lot of different ways to do this it excels at dream sequences I mean literature can't do dream sequences the way that movies can do dream sequences or incomplete memories where people kind of go back and and then fill in that one shot of the killer's face that was missing in the previous, you know, version of the story that the characters told, and all of these are mental distortions, and that's what makes for interesting drama. But when, when then people get incorrect understanding of mental illness because of the way that that media has played with all of the different ways that the human mind can distort reality, then that's when we run into all of the the stigma that we're talking about.
3: It's easy drama, right? It is. Yeah. Exploiting people's mental health is easy drama. <laughs> and if
1: you think of all the Oscar winners over the years who played mentally ill characters, I mean, it's a long list uh, because it's it's meaty, you know, stuff, uh, especially for a long time. The the whole idea of uh, multiple personality disorder, which was popularly called schizophrenia, was misrepresented. But you can see why actors loved it. I mean, you get to switch characters in an instant. It, it's meaty drama that they say that, um, soap opera has the most mental illness, like per air minute of any, um, media. And that's because it's, it's easy soap opera, right? So people get amnesia, they get multiple personality disorder, they, get, you know, depression and suicide, they, they, uh, you know, disappear and come back. Um, and, all of it is is because it's it's just a, a figure of the the screenwriting process rather than something that that affects people
3: Man, what a good conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I wanted to touch base kind of kind of circle back to what we had discussed in terms of some of the studies that that we've seen. So, people did not feel safe or comfortable living around people with mental illness Mm -hmm. they didn't want them as their neighbors and they didn't want a mental health facility of any kind in their area because they felt that they it was not safe Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Um, what were your thoughts on how film can be responsible in the future in regards to mental illness and at what point does an artist Are they required to take responsibility for accurate depictions of people with mental illness? At what point are we responsible for our reaction?
1: I think like a lot of things, this is going to be an evolution process. And anything that I would prescribe now will already be outdated in 10 years as we continue to learn how to do better by our friends and neighbors who are are dealing with, with mental illness. The same way that the history of depictions of homosexuality in cinema or, or you know, integrated neighborhoods or all of the different uh, issues has evolved over the years. And there's no one right way to do it, but the more we are able to have conversations and the people who are producing the media that we consume are part of those conversations, I, I think the better ideas people can develop about what they're doing. Obviously, there are some things that are... Just plain wrong, right? <laughs> we need to have fewer lazy links between violence and mental illness as if one always explains the other. That's low-hanging fruit. I think that people can easily eliminate the idea of, you know, quote-unquote crazy from their from their screenplays and that's low-hanging fruit as well. But if you if you study the history of how media has sometimes improved in its representational strategies, Around different kinds of stigmatized identities, sometimes early attempts that are clumsy still help move the needle. You know, the the um, you can look at some of the really earnest uh, Sidney Poitier movies of the '60s that were that were trying to make a statement on civil rights, and there are still things that you know we might wish different about them. They could have gone further. They could have done better. They could have you know allowed him to be something other than. Uh, a model minority kind of figure. But at the same time, they did the very best they could for the era and they, they made a big difference. Um, and so when filmmakers really make up their mind to do it, the key is not to worry about doing it perfectly, but, but to, to really learn as much as you can and, and talk to the people who are affected and um, see how to do it better um, and, and keep, keep trying.
3: There was actually something in that study that we had as, when it came to women versus men, mm-hmm. people depicted with mental illness. There was a stark difference between how many were and were not. So they, they gave us the number breakdown in this study that they did. It was between April 12th through April 17th of 2003, just looking at the media that was portrayed on television that week how many mental health disorders there were, as as they put it in the study, the general percentage, and then how many of those were male. So uh, Mm. there were nine depictions of alcohol addiction and abuse, four of drug addiction and abuse, schizophrenia, there were two, psychosis two, depressive disorder two. So of those, uh, going in the same order for alcohol and abuse, 89% were male. Drug addiction abuse, 75% were male. For schizophrenia and psychosis, both of those were 50% male Um, as, as that goes. So we see this massive push to depict mental illness through the male scope, but we don't have a whole lot of representation of women with mental illness. Um, what are your thoughts on depictions of mental illness in regards to women historically as well as today how how is that that being depicted, and what sort of conclusions can we kind of draw from that
1: hmm. I recently published a a book i co-edited with like wonderful co-editor Linda Bishayevsky, called hysterical women in American comedy, and and our framing device for that book was the historical concept of hysteria. Right, um, the word hysteria. Comes from the same root word as hysterectomy. It, it references the, the uterus or the womb, um, and and it references the historical diagnosis that any time a woman showed strong emotion, you know, she was too angry or too sad or or um, too sexual or not sexual enough, that that she was subject to being diagnosed with hysteria. Something's wrong with her female body and um, uh, institutionalized or or stigmatized or or whatever. But it was a way to not take women seriously, you know, to um, pathologize whatever was wrong with them instead of looking around at environmental factors that might legitimately be producing anger or sorrow (laughs) or or rebellion of some kind um, to, to just treat being female as somehow itself already. A Mental disorder, basically, um, and I think representations of women in mental illness are always contending with that history in some way that that um, women are treated as they as if they're already inherently more irrational than men more prone to emotion, or that that emotion might get uh, like curdled into d- different kinds of evil behaviors over the course of their lives um, and so I, I do think that there's a lot of pressure on women in reality and when we're making representations in media to emphasize health and wellness and even temperedness and rationality because because that's been such a fight historically. So I guess I'm not surprised that it's the history is a little bit different and that the sort of contemporary outcomes are a little bit different and I I do think that they're they're always filtered through that Concern. On the other hand, women are much more likely to seek out help when when they are experiencing mental illness. Um, more likely to make an appointment with a, a provider and and actually attend because there's a culture of talking about you know one's emotions and and um, getting getting input and you know admitting vulnerability when when something is wrong to to get that taken care of.
3: You watch Girl Interrupted and. That is a film that is entirely about women with mental illness. That's yeah. that's where it takes place, but how positive or negative that can be. It certainly shows that these women need to be sympathized with for sure. They they these are sympathetic protagonists mm-hmm. that are seeking help. It's based on a true story supposedly. But you also have individuals that in that film that are still sensationalized mm-hmm. in the way that they're doing. And they're showing very specific kinds of mental illness through that film that, that people generally only associate or mostly associate with women. So, for example, uh, one of the characters is uh, sexually abused and that was the cause or stem of her mental illness, which is often... The association with men. it's like they can't; they're not even allowed to to uh, experience something else in order to to be deserving of assistance or help or or anything like that. Like that's the only sympathy that you can get mm-hmm. uh, was kind of my perspective. What's what's your perspective on on how women are are portrayed with mental illness?
1: I mean, thinking back to some of the mid century historical examples, things like the snake pit with Olivia de Havilland where she's in a, an institution. Uh, it's, it's highly sensationalized, but she does recover, you know, she has a good doctor and it's a, it's a narrative of illness and recovery. And I think that that's very common in, in stories with women at their core. Similarly, uh, Joanne Woodward and the three faces of Eve or, um, uh, well, I guess less so in something like, Black Swan. I'm trying to think of uh, women, stories of women and mental illness are often melodramas that really put a deep dive into exactly what they're experiencing and what are the consequences of it. I th- we're, we're very comfortable, I think, with a kind of medicalized gaze on women, like what's wrong with her and how do we fix it uh, in a way that stories about men rarely are. Uh, and maybe that's why our social construction of gender suggests that, you know, if a man has mental illness, we don't expect it to be a story of treatment or um, recovery. We expect it to be a story of of violence that they'll be lashing out in some way. It's not to say... There aren't stories about violent, mentally ill women, but thinking through the sort of major, groundbreaking pictures over the years, it seems it seems more likely to be a therapeutic kind of gaze on the the woman's breakdown.
3: Faye Dunaway's character, Diana, she is uh, she's a really interesting character because I I look at her as it, it's a fantastic performance, mm-hmm. but they they go out of their way to. A, make sure that you're aware that she uh, has masculine features yeah. in her personality and, and her depiction and how she's going. Uh, she seems like a representation of the modern audience in that scenario as well. She's the one that's really going for the sensational, this is what I wanna see. She's obsessed with television. Everything that she talks about is in regards to television. How would she act if she were in the position that Howard Beale is in?
1: Um, Well, Diana's a complicated feature of the film for me. Uh, It seems the film is too... It's too easy to dump on her all of the evils of the modern world and then blame her for them, right? And so... um, She's she's intentionally attractive, it it seems to me as an allegory for how media is is attractive right it's it's irresistible you have to follow where it leads and then and then um later the max character can just lecture her on all the things that are wrong with her because they're all the things that are wrong with television um, and then walk away with you know his his uh soul cleansed of this because she's served as the scapegoat you know for the for the problems of the film and um and, and it's not a movie that would pass the beckdell test right she doesn't have any other women in her life, the only woman who has a real speaking role, um, besides Max's wife, who just gets dumped is, is Diana, who, who, for whom attractiveness and seductiveness has been turned into, you know, they're, they're only interesting for the ways they have an effect on the men around her, um, in a way that's typical and problematic of films from the seventies. Right. Um, so I think, you know, her mental health seems fine, but she's not a character. She's a, she's a, an allegory, right. Um, and being that uh, there's uh, th- there's no way a real human person would sit there and let Max lecture her the way that she sits there and lets Max lecture her in the in the second to last scene. It is I just I was screaming at my television because I couldn't believe the way that the film was, you know, forcing her <laughs> to endure its thesis statement while while I like, uh, um, yelled at her. I, I, I have the same reaction sometimes when I watch um, the graduate. I often show the graduate to my classes. And over the years, increasingly, um, Mrs. Robinson is the hero for me, that that the young people are acting very stupid. <laughs> and, you know, when you're young and you watch that movie, she's monstrous. But then when you become middle-aged, it's like, oh, brother. She's really the sympathetic She is person. by far. Well, she's the only sure. person I would want to go to lunch with uh, in this whole movie. Um, so anyway, uh, that's a little bit of a tangent. I, I think there's no room for the the idea of female mental illness because female ent- mental illness is much more melodrama and this this movie is satire yeah. uh, maybe that's maybe that's the short answer
3: that's uh, I, I would say that they don't give her an opportunity they 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 allude to an idea that she she has issues with her mental health mm-hmm. you know they, she talks about going to her analyst and then she sleeps with her analyst mm-hmm. and she does these things and and granted a lot of that is meant to Sort of frame her as this almost masculine figure. Yeah. It's almost like they don't give her an opportunity to be a character. It's not much different from the uh, what do they call it? The 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 manic pixie dream girl mm-hmm. in a way. It's almost a reverse manic pixie gre- dream girl scenario. Yeah. Um, but I would find it interesting. I would almost love to see a film where we could examine her mental health issues. And I actually flesh her out as a, as a full-blown character rather than as a, a plot device yeah. more than anything else. Uh, so what would it look like if we did reverse that scenario? What if we took Diana mm-hmm. and we put her in the position of Howard Beale? What if we had a young, attractive woman who had mental illness and that was being exploited by a network and the Howard Beale type character was exactly what you would imagine. The man in power, mm-hmm. the person that, that is there overseeing, that is trying to exploit this, this individual. What kind of a message would we see? What kind of uh, a film would that turn into? How would it affect the narrative?
1: Well, you tell me?
3: Well, what fun's a thought exercise with just one brain?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't you think somebody would try to rush to her rescue, right? We have such a representation of women as victims or as needing a damsel in distress that it seems to me she would become that in the film. I think,
3: especially if made in that time period, you know, we're looking at this in the lens from uh, especially mental health in 1976. Yeah. Um Certainly, that's what, what we would have. We would have probably a, a another figure, probably Max, come in and he'd be the knight in shining armor, kind of a savior that, that's able to do that. Or maybe if she does, it's it's seen as far more tragic yeah. um, when, when she does die towards the end, yeah. if we were to do that. I think, though, or at least this was my hope, okay. would be that if this was made today in such a thing what we would be looking at is uh, something that we already see. Women in Hollywood get victimized all the time. Their mental state is exploited. Their physical bodies are exploited. They're used as sensational. And I would hope that now that this has become so much towards the forefront, especially with this being the Me Too era, things like that, that we would see... Something more positive come out of that. Maybe she would come out on top or maybe, you know, the the network wouldn't necessarily just get away with it scot-free with with high ratings. That would be my more positive hope, but it would be interesting to see.
1: I think she'd be accused of being uh, an attention-seeking young narcissist um, and then dismissed. Uh, but maybe maybe there's a way to do it.
3: That saddens me. (laughs) I was was hoping something a little more positive. But, you know, you're probably right, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) Just if we look at tradition, I suppose.
1: You know, if there were a young female, Howard Beale now, she'd be on Instagram or something, right? Like, there isn't an apparatus like this that stands up the voices of young women for a national audience in quite the same way. Sorry to be a downer.
3: Well, thank you so much again, Vicky, for joining us today. It's been an amazing experience getting to talk with you again about this film, about uh, stigma and mental health and depictions of women with mental health or men with mental health and everything in between. It's been an absolute joy. Is there, there anything that you'd like to plug real quick?
1: Oh, well, if people are interested in my book, Hysterical uh, Women in American Comedy, you can get it from anywhere. It's published by the University of Texas Press. It's very big. Got a lot of book for your money. Um, and it covers the whole history of women in American stage screen and um, television comedy from the the from Fanny Bryce in the silent era to, um, Tina Fey and Lena Dunham and contemporary women. Um, I'm working on a book right now. You can look for it next year about representations of pregnancy in American film and television comedy. And actually it's, it's interesting relative to this conversation because the history of misrepresentation has had some very specific policy Implications and and uh, social misunderstandings about you know, what reproduction is and what it isn't, and the the ways in which, um, of course, it wasn't represented in film and television until you know Lucille Ball mostly, but then also the many the many complications and controversies over the years, like um, Murphy Brown and um, representations of birth control and um, abortion and adoption and and the ways that they intersect with pregnancy. So that was. Um, too long-winded but that that is uh coming soon to a a bookstore near you thank you so much for having me it's been it's been a pleasure and i'm i'm so glad to to get to talk to you michael and see you back on campus yeah
3: it's been it's been a lot of fun so uh we always end our podcast the same way and we're going to do it slightly different this time so we'll start we we always end with our, our guests saying go do good things but uh I don't know, do you want to do it? We were gonna end with with Howard Beale's most famous line and then go do good things. You do it. You want me, to, okay, okay. Tell you what, you do the you do good things.
1: Okay.
3: Uh, uh, I'll do the, I'm mad as hell. Okay. So. All right. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not gonna
1: take this anymore. So I'll go do good things.
2: <laughs> Done. High five. Oh my gosh, you guys. Oh